Welcome to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw, where we dive into life lessons from athletes, entrepreneurs, experts, leaders, writers, and difference makers. They all have three things in common. None are perfect. All are humble, and they've learned a few things along the way. And What I Wish I Knew, they share those lessons with you. If there's one thing we've learned from guests on What I Wish I Knew, it's this. No matter the obstacles, these people always find a way. Please subscribe, follow, and rate us on your favorite podcast platform and join our email list at whatiwishinewshow.com. We're deeply honored today to speak with UCLA professor Gay Teresa Johnson. Dr. Johnson is an expert on race, cultural politics, and freedom struggles, as well as the connections between them. She's the author of three books, Spaces of Conflict, Sounds of Solidarity, Music, Race, and Spatial Entitlement, Futures of Black Radicalism, and the forthcoming Rings of Dissent. She's an in-demand speaker, award-winning faculty member, and teaches one of the most popular courses at UCLA. When you listen to this episode, you'll easily realize why. The world today is deeply divided over many things, including politics, COVID, race, culture, values, and religion. Bridging that chasm is perhaps harder than it's ever been, and yet maybe never more important than it is right now. Dr. Johnson shares a perspective that fear overhangs much of that discord. In this conversation, she talks about the capacity for compassion that we all have and how we can find ways to tap into it. She gets into how to approach important conversations with a curious mindset rather than a furious one. And she makes the case for why we can learn from the young who pursue joy in everyday life. Dr. Gay Teresa Johnson, welcome to What I Wish I Knew. Thank you so much for having me. I was so surprised to get this invitation and it sounded so appealing the moment I read the invitation. So thank you. I'm I'm really excited to be in this very valuable conversation. We're honored. So tell us, how did you get here? You have such an interesting background. We'd love for our audience to hear, hear about you. Oh, thank you. You know, I feel like, sometimes I feel like the things and the people who contributed to the life story that I have make me feel like a unicorn. I mean, I a lot of times people will self-refer to that, to talk about the way that they have beat all of these odds to get to this place. And surely that's part of my story, but I think about all my ancestors, but especially my parents and the friends that have helped me along the way. So I got here because of a village, because of people who believed in me and people who always encouraged me and inspired me, who thought of it as their job to encourage me. I was lucky to have, and I am lucky to have amazing parents. Um, uh, but I also got here because of the experiences that I, I've had as someone who lived abroad um, from a very young time um, in, 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 in East Africa and who traveled um, as a young person with my parents and then quite a bit as an adult. Um, I'm, I'm someone who's been exposed to a lot of different stories, but also and most importantly, I think, to understanding the power of kindness and the power of compassion in all kinds of different contexts, in the kinds of contexts where people say it's impossible to have it, in, in the kinds of conditions where it seems impossible for people to have the kind of capacity that would allow compassion, but yet they have it anyway. And I've always been curious about, well, how is that? How do we make that together? Because it's always possible. And so I think I'm here. I teach what I teach. I write what I write because there's an abiding hope that is really kind of my responsibility to carry on uh, that other people have modeled for me all my life. So I think that's, that's why I'm here yeah. and how I got here. Thank you. That's a, that's fascinating way of looking at it. And, you know, you talked about, you know, that 
overarching kindness that that appears. And it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like one of the benefits of of travel is you see you see the world in a different way, but you also see yourself in a in a different way. And to have had that experience, you know, it must have been very powerful to see how other people function, how they go about their lives, but also how they go about sort of sort of sharing. And how how did that? How would you kind of compare and contrast what we see? you know, kind of in developed countries versus others. Yeah, and you know, there's different kinds of travel, right? I mean, we, we, we all travel like as tributaries into a river. I mean, my, my grandmother, for example, was a, was a migrant worker and she was someone who traveled from Chicago to Minnesota all the way in the circuit as a migrant worker as a child down through Texas and then into Mexico and then would cross the border as a street vendor with her father and her brothers and sisters. And you know, I, I I say this in part because at part of my travels as as a person, as a grown person, was was to, when I went to graduate school, I went to the University of Minnesota, and the only person I knew that had ever been there was my grandmother, who picked cotton and and canned corn in 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 Minnesota. And so here I was as a uh, a PhD student, the first in my family to get a PhD. My father has a doctorate in education, but I I. I didn't know anything really about what this was going to be like, the culture of higher ed um, and graduate school. And yet I had this connection to that land because my grandmother had been there in the 30s. And I, 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 I think there's a lot of different kinds of travel that even you might not embark upon, but that somebody in your family or in your kind of constellation of, of folks has done. And so anywhere I go now, I think of me as the person who had all this incredible luck and privilege to become educated, to see the world through these educated eyes. And I think of it of like, how does it look through my grandmother's eyes? How does it look through my grandfather's eyes? Who's a bus driver and a janitor. Um, so, uh, but more to your question, I think that here in the United States um, and also in sort of more developed parts of the world, um, you know, we get used to a certain kind of standard. We get used to a certain kind of mm, um, sort of level of comfort that we take for granted. And it's not a bad thing because I do think that, you know, part of what is so great about children, for example, is that they should take us for granted as parents. They should take certain basic things for granted, food. They should take shelter for granted. They should take joy for granted, the opportunity to create safe spaces to play in. All of those things should be sort of bottom line standards for the entire world. And so when I see places that don't have that, the children don't have it, what I find and what I'm drawn to is how children and how a lot of folks, they, they just search for the joy. You could have a child in a war-torn place that is being bombed and shelled all the time and they're gonna find something to play with in the rubble. They're, they're always going to. And I think there's a part of us because we started as children that are always looking for that joy. We're always looking for that thing in the rubble that's gonna make everything better. And we very rarely give up. So the traveling has really helped me to understand that better and to also you know, recognize it in other people. And I hope, I hope that that also increases kindness and compassion because it allows you to see with a different kind of optic into what people are not just going through, but you know what they do with what they got. And we're just doing the best we can with what we have. And hey, just, just 
just on that point and and wholeheartedly endorse uh, endorse kindness both both in the home and and in the workplace too what um i'm interested in how you threaded that though and, and you started to mention hey you know you see it in in some of the western worlds or, or the more developed worlds slightly a slightly differently what I, i'm really keen to understand because it's built you I'm, I'm guessing as a person what what are the major outputs, if you like, of kindness and, and threads that you've seen that's either similar or different that would be in a developed country and a less developed? Well, I mean, I think that um, there's an industry around kindness in, in the developed world. I think um, there's all kinds of things that you can buy, you can send people that, and it's, it's wonderful. You know, I love to, to receive something in the mail that signals that somebody's taking care of me, who's thinking of me. But some people don't have that, right? So they spend time, they cook for you, they make something for your child because they know that maybe you're going through something and they, they know that, oh, I care for your child too and I wanna make something for them. Um, they, you know, they're not grand gestures. And I think a lot of times we, we think that grand gestures are the only way and, and the, the bigger is always better. I think that's one of the that's one of the kind of sad things about too much of anything, and and that doesn't mean that you know in a in the sort of more quote unquote developed world that we've lost sight of our humanity completely, but it's it's also kind of obscured it a bit because we forget that the most valuable thing is the time and connection that we put into into things mm. with each mm. other. And I find I've had that experience so many times. I had this, and this may be something. This may be something that you, you know, choose to include. But I was driving one morning to work at UCLA, and um, I was kind of in a hurry. I had a meeting. I was late, and I was coming around this bend, and somebody was going too fast right behind me, and they flipped over, and they landed upside down. And I'm looking in my rearview mirror, and I'm watching this car slide towards me on its route. And then it stopped about probably a foot from my bumper. And I got out because I thought, well, do I keep going? Because I'm thinking of this meeting I had at 10. It's like 10.03 and I'm almost there. But I got out because I thought, I can't just leave. You know, I mean, what, who knows? So, so I get down on the ground because everything's shattered. It's all, and there's this, there's this person upside down, totally conscious who is saying, oh my God, oh my God, young person, college student. Um, and then her grandfather next to her in the passenger seat. And it, I said, I said, don't worry, somebody's called, you know, 911, it's gonna be okay. And they said, can you call my mom? And that, that's, all, that's, that's, what they, that's all they wanted in that moment. Can you call my mom? And so strange that the phone had landed right outside the window and so I said, sure, you know, I'll call. It was all cracked and stuff, but I called and the mother, I said, You're, I said, is this your son or your daughter? I can't tell. And it's my daughter, it's my daughter. It turns out this person is trans. And, and I, I said, so your mom is on the phone and she said, she holds, she wants to talk to you and couldn't reach out. Of the, but I just was telling my class later that day, I said, all of these things, I was in a hurry. That person was obviously in a hurry. Mm -hmm. The grandfather's on their way to work. So many things around the tension between the mother and the child over the sexuality change and all of that stuff. And the only thing they said was, can you please call my mother? Mm. And I thought that is that point of humanity <clears throat> that we all, eventually we get, we, we get there. And, 
Too often it's through emergency and too often it's through trauma, but it's always available to us. Mm. So I really, um, I, I try to, to access that as much as I can. And because we got it, I know it's there. I know it's there. And, and right now it feels like such an emergency with the climate and all of the human rights things that are going on. And, you know, it's been such a confusing time for so many people, no matter what your political background, no matter what your opinions are, it's been a very hard time for all of us. Yet we're all still here and we're all human beings. And we all have that, could you call my mother moment? Yeah. So how do we get that more often? And how do we connect on that? That's my, always my question. A fantastic one. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned something and I love this concept where you said that, you know, humanity is always there and it's always accessible. Um, and yet, as we look at the world today, it seems like so often so many of us choose not to access that. And we live in a, you know, a polarized world about so many different things. And I'm just curious to know, why do you feel why do you feel like that's the case now? Or if you agree, but if so, why do you think that is happening? There's just so much money to be made off of discord, you know, and I, 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 I don't think that's the only thing. Um, I mean, because the flip side of the, the beauty of humanity is like, there's also the, the complex parts of humanity too. And we, we often want this like really pretty picture with the ribbon on it about oh, there's that joy that they go find, but there's also that like frailty and, and, and the flaws too. So I think that, um, you know, in part what's happened is that there's been like a real capitalizing on discord. And we know that a lot of people make a lot of money off of that, that, that um, harmony is not uh, necessarily something that gets you rich, you know? Um, so I, I think that's happened on a large scale. And of course we all, are students of the economy and we know what that means and, and, and we all have our opinions about it. Uh, but I also think that there are so many distractions these days um, and it's, it's great in some ways because it allows us to connect with people who we never would have been able to connect with 10 years ago even. The internet, social media, all of those things can be very positive. They've made world changes but we've, we've let it get away from us a little bit and I I sometimes think that, again, no matter what your political background, some of us have let our agency go a little bit. We've, we've let other people take over um, every aspect of our lives, um, what we enjoy. They, we let people tell us what gives us joy, what gives us happiness. We let people define for us what fulfillment is. And so much so, and we're so bombarded with all of the pictures and the memes and the, the, the messages and the constant commercials. And, that we can't sort of say, well, do I like this? I don't, I don't know if I like, maybe I don't, you know? And I think that there's, there should be more opportunity for people to do that. I think women, children, like folks who are traditionally marginalized should be asking themselves all the time. Do I mm -hmm. like this? Also people who are in power should be asking, is this right? Is it good? Is it helpful? Uh, because, because I, um, well, I mean, this for all the reasons that we know um, that even if it's not profitable, uh, we, we're all in this together and we're all going to go down together if we don't, if we don't take better care. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. I went on. No, that's, that's fascinating, Gay. And, and just to lead on from there, you know, you're a highly educated uh, professor here. What, 
in terms of discord i you know it's a really interesting trait there and and if you look at them and i guess you're a, you're kind of imposing in a way some of the characteristics like um social um, media etc cetera, etc cetera. what's your take though on you know if you sat in a room and said where where the shakers and mover are are so for example is it you know is it within the young is it within a certain class is it within you know in america is, is it within a certain a, a, a territory um and the second question is how do we unlock that you know it's all very well saying it but how do you unlock that what you know what what would you do you know would you work on the on on the person would you work on on it as a business what two two questions there such great questions well the first one i think is um yeah, well there's when I when I started teaching um, my I guess I I was um, in 2016 um, 2017 winter 2017 January I started teaching this class that is really big class um, and I, I I was teaching it just like I'd always taught it which is it's a class on like um, it was a Chicano studies class introduction to Chicano studies but I teach about community I teach about race I teach about all the things that we come to understand as kind of like the air we breathe, but we're not always sort of, you know, critically engaging them. And my my approach had always been the same, which is I sort of try to devastate what you think you know about race and the economy and all of that stuff. And I break it all down and then I build it, build it back up with these other other aspects of community knowledge, things that that we actually already know. Um, but then also, you know, lots of different kind of like a, a, a fuller version of history. Um, but there was so much going on in the world at that time that I noticed that what I had always done wasn't working. In real time, as I was telling students, look what this is doing to migrant farm workers. Look at what this is doing to immigrants. Look at what this is doing to people of color. It was traumatizing for them because they were living it in real time in January of 2017. We were living through the Muslim ban. We were living through all of this, the assaults on DACA and was, it was really tough for them. And I had to step back. It was like one of my most humbling moments as an educator. And I had to ask myself, what is my role? Like, why, why am I here? And to your question. And, and I'm looking at all these young people and I'm thinking, am I here to download on them what I know? Or am I here to help them see what they already have and make them feel more powerful so that they can use the tools that they acquire through this education to go out and do the things that make this world better, but also make their own lives more meaningful and those of their families. Let's, let's not try to do only all big. Let's try to start here as well. And I had to just throw out my syllabus and start from scratch. And it was, it was so humbling. I didn't even know what to do on the next day. It made me realize too, that I had been paying too much attention to all the bad news. And I hadn't been in charge of my own agency to, to understand that there were so many people who were helping folks to find their humanity and dignity in those moments. And just because it wasn't on the mainstream news didn't mean it wasn't happening. I wasn't looking hard enough. And so those students were the, the very ones I'm trying to say, well, this is what's going on. They knew they're living it, you know, and I, needed to ask them, how are you dealing with this in your communities? And one by one, those hands went up. Well, I mean, we organize phone trees 
just in case someone we know that's undocumented gets picked up, we know who to call. We call the aunt, we call these people, and then we bring the kids to the house. We cook food for the people who have been detained. We try to take care of foster kids that are in our community. All of these things, I was thinking, well, or we play music. Some there were people who were holding concerts outside of the county jail downtown, just for the people on the other inside, you know, um, family members, people who are living five miles away from that jail, and their family members were inside, and they were organizing concerts on the street. Hmm. All of these organizations that are doing this work, making history, but not always making the history books. That I feel like is my job is to also help students to see what you come from and your experience, your situated experience matters. And it's just as important as whatever we're finding in these textbooks. So where it is, I think, is in those students. It's already there. It's in young people who never get a shot at school. It's in the people who decide, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm gonna give my, do my best customer service here because it's, a, it's about me. It's not about this job, but I'm the person that says thank you and please and have a great day. Those, all of those things that we often take for granted and as a sort of bottom line business feature are also about the person. So us recognizing our humanity in each other that way becomes really important. So I think it's out there. I think we just, we, we, we're not often looking in the right places, but the answers are already there. We're just so obsessed with prescribing. We're, we know because we're educated. So we have the answer for your community. And if you just follow my plan, I've actually never stepped foot in your community, but I'm, I think this is what you can do. How about the people who've been working for 25 years on this very thing without the funds? They know what to do. So I try to have more trust in, in what communities are doing. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. I mean, I, I love that whole idea that you know, the answers are there. And, and in some ways, I think what I heard you say is that each person makes a choice every time, every single day to kind of manifest their humanity, to decide who they're going to be, how they're going to be, and how they treat others. And it, I guess it seems, I mean, it seems so blatantly obvious, but civility starts with each of us, right? I think it does. So I wanted to ask, I don't want to turn too negative here, but we also live in a world where it's hard for people to talk about difficult issues, race being one of them. And, and in, in my life experience, I, I was born in the Midwest, spent a few years in Minnesota, but my, mostly grew up in Atlanta. And my impression of my youth was that people in Minnesota were so nice, so there weren't really problems there. People in the South, back in the olden days, I felt like there are a lot of problems there. And more of the problems I felt like were with the older generation. And I thought my generation would grow up and grow out of this. And that didn't happen. And what it made me realize is that this stuff perpetuates. And, and even now, even contemporaries that I have that I grew up with, it's hard sometimes to talk about issues because no one would ever admit to being either wrong or to being mean or to being racist or sexist or anything else. And yet, based on their actions or social media postings. I mean, they show all the signs, many of them show all the signs of that sort of thing, but would never admit it. So why do you think it's so hard for some of us to talk about issues like that? And what can we do about that? That's a good question. Part of it is that we live in punitive societies. If you do something wrong, they throw you away. If you commit a crime, you go to prison and you sometimes never come out. You could be 16, you could be 13 and you could be sentenced to life in prison. 
Um, what would a community look like if we saw each other with all our flaws and we decided that nobody is expendable, but you can make a mistake. And as a process and a community process of accountability and redemption and restoration, that the only way the community can move forward as a whole is if everybody contributes to it. Now, some people will say, well, but there are some people who aren't redeemable that you know are not. But if you usually, I think like 99% of the time, you, you take a look back and say, well, well, what's their story? Did they get everything they needed? I mean, did they, did they get the love they needed? Did they have the shelter, the food? Did they have people that believed in them and encouraged them? How did they get here? I mean, back to your first question, how did, how did you get here that you committed this crime or you did this thing? And when you are a community that doesn't come from a place of punishment, but instead one of, of restoration and transformation, then we're getting somewhere, I think. So I, I, I wanna say that, um, the, that broadening out, sort of expanding our notion of civility as one that the structure is also responsible for. I mean, we ask for leadership all the time, but in what? I mean, we, we want people to lead not just in might, but also in, in, in character. And, and I feel like that really went out the door um, the last, well, for a while it has, you know? So everybody is just like behaving so badly. And then the excuse becomes, well, I didn't elect a pastor. You know, I elected, I elected a leader, but a leader in what? You know, and, and that, that's, <laughs> that's the, uh, the question in the United States, all over the world. And it's just people behaving, you know, badly with, with very severe consequences. I think that what our, um, the, the, that the way to understand how uh, awful the conversation is right now. I mean, because I, I like to be like, I, I'm a realist. I, I, I like to be optimistic, but I'm also very clear about this being pretty awful time. I mean, my, I talked to my parents about how tumultuous the 60s and early 70s were for them. They say it's worse now, you know, it's, it's actually worse. And my parents grew up going to segregated schools and, you know, it's, it's worse in a lot of ways. So, um, so I, I like to expand our uh, accountability to include the structures and then also to understand that, you know, children, for example, or young people are reflections of what they see every day. So if we don't have that kind of moral leadership, and I, I mean that in, in the deepest sense, not in the, in the organized religion sense, but in a true kind of integrity around character, then uh, what can we expect, you know? Um, but the other thing is that people forget history all the time. This is why history is so important to know. And I know I mentioned this, I talked with you about this um, as well, but there's so much to learn from the late 19th century in not just the US, but all over the world. But in the US in particular, folks do think of the South and a certain generation, a certain set of generations as sort of relegated to this like trash bin of history. Like all these people were trash, they were, racist, they were sexist, they were awful, but they also had the, like these full lives and they weren't all located in one place. And we, we somehow though the narrative has been shaped that way, just as you said, you know, living in the Midwest, this is what we thought, not thinking about all the lynchings, so many lynchings that happened in Minnesota, we just didn't know, right? A lot of us don't, because we don't learn that in school. But during radical reconstruction, this was an incredible, incredible opportunity for people to learn from what they were doing and for us to learn from what those folks were doing. And that is that just after emancipation from 
1867 to 1877 is this period of radical reconstruction where there's so many profound changes going on all over the world. The, the industrial revolution is really heating up. This is why we get emancipation, not because people all of a sudden feel terrible about everything up to 1850, but because they're saying, should we go forward as an industrial nation or should we go forward as an agrarian nation? It really becomes an economic question, not one about race or saving a group of people. So once that decision is made and we, we decide, well, we're gonna expand westward in the United States, um, which means genocide, which means also industry, but also means that a lot of really complicated things like union troops in the South liberating slaves are also the people who are committing genocide in Texas, Oklahoma, uh, that are breaking up strikes in Wisconsin and Minnesota along the Mississippi River. There's all these very complex things happening. One of them is that whites in the South that are poor, just as poor as newly freed enslaved people are looking to like a, in a sort of horizontal way and saying, our conditions are the same. Our kids can't go to school. We can't own land. We can't vote. And we're living in the same conditions. What are we doing fighting over, you know, what can we do together? So there's all these incredible coalitions that pop up that are really a precursor for the populist movement where blacks and whites are working together to get people, black people on juries, women to vote in local contexts. Um, schools integrated, all of these things happen in the South. And some of these towns, small towns in the South are ruled by these coalitions, fabulous, and never taught, never taught in the schools. So how would we ever know that there's a model for this kind of cooperation? And where does it go? It goes away because at a certain point, the ruling class says, we can't have this. There's no way we can have these people coming together and doing these things. We can't have women voting. We can't have blacks on juries. This is the first and only time for like the next hundred years that we get black senators. I mean, we don't have another one until very, very late in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So all of these gains are made because people recognize the commonality of their condition. Not only that, only out of oppression, but they recognize what a true democracy looks like. And it's destroyed by the ruling class saying, and a number of things, but especially this, coming up with an elaborate plan to make race the primary separator for people saying, it doesn't matter that you live at the end of the same cotton row. It doesn't matter that your kids are disenfranchised in a way that black kids are, you're white, you're better. And that's what makes you invited into the American family and them never. So you have this thing, use it. And that is the lie that a lot of people fell for. And we saw them fall for it again in the last election where they thought, well, Surely there's something about us that sets us apart, you know, and even though this is going to be the worst for us, these four years are going to be the worst for us, for poor whites, actually. And yet we're better. So, you know, and it was, a, there's a lot more to it, but I just want to say, I think history is full of these examples and mm. done them as human beings. We've done this and we can, again, if, if we can do it under those circumstances, surely these ones are no exception. So how do you see then, given all that, it's fascinating because that is a part of history that obviously isn't widely known. I, I wasn't aware of it until you told me about it. And, you know, so we have these, these parallels to our historical past and examples where cooperation occurred. Are there, you know, things that you feel like should happen going forward? Like if for those of us who are motivated to try to make a difference now, um, what can we do? What, what could individuals do to help overcome some of these 
almost contrived differences. I want people to take their power back. You know, I mean, it sounds, it might sound more sort of grand than I think a bit, but then, then people, people want it to sound. But, but the, the question there at the core is what is power? Power is, is love and knowing what to do with that love. It's your capacity to love people anyway, to love the possibility that a community can be together anyway, no matter what our differences are, no matter what our backgrounds are, it's the possibility to listen very well, even if you are diametrically opposed to what the other person is saying. So we shouldn't outsource that. I mean, I, I don't think that, I, I think we should be democratic about the amount of power that we give everyone else. We should give a child as much power in their opinion as somebody who won an election. Everybody should, there should be a kind of democratizing of, of capacity and power. And so when I say take our power back, I don't mean like a party or a group of people, but as beings, we should take the power to be in a process of accountability, apology sometimes, of of good character, of kindness, that is our greatest power. And that's the one that refuses profit over people. It's the one that refuses um, short-term gain over mother earth. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that isn't perfect, it's flawed, but we accept it for what it is. And if we can, if we can do that even just a little bit, I feel like we, and all of us, you know, just to try, um, I, I feel like we can make a lot of change. The people underestimate what it means to try. And, and I say this mm -hmm. as someone who um, has spoken to big crowds, but then also as someone who's a mother and who's been a partner. And how hard is it in your friendships and your relationships to just try? And then to give the person their credit for just trying, even if it's um, flawed and imperfect, they're trying. You know, and that's the, that, that kind of capacity and centeredness and groundedness in the human um, condition and in the human um, desire to be, be together in community and also to have peace, I think is, um, is some, it's a simplicity, uh, coming back to that, it's a simple thing. Mm. Yeah, buy it on Amazon, <laughs> but it's only shown in the, in, in the way you show up for yourself and for others. One thing um, that's fascinating linked into that, Gay, and it's, it's a, you know, you've, you know, I've had the fortune to read more about what you've described here, but one thing I want to pick up on, you talk about kindness, and I think we can all embed that. Um, one thing you do pick up on is this um, fear uh, aspect um, of understanding, I think is the term that, that you use and I know you've got a saying that you use which I'd, I'd like you to share but you know that's something in our lives and in in the workplace it's it's kind of a fear that comes from a chemical at the back of the brain that says I'm uncomfortable but I'd, I'd like to hear it from you Gay on, on that particular aspect because it can be a habit yeah fear can be a habit and I, I'm guessing but I'd like to hear your view how do you get out of that? How, 
how do you build on that? You know, how do you, how do you become a, a better habitual person that reduces fear? I'm glad you bring this up because there's so much work around this with implicit bias and, and um, how, and it is truly a chemical thing. I mean, a lot of folks who do the work that I do will say, you know, we can get over that, but there is some biology there as well. And so how do you, how, how do you deal with those very human biological things that signal difference and signal uh-oh, I don't think this is a good conversation for me, so I'm gonna shut it down. Usually that fear usually comes, I, I, I heard this saying that um, uh, anger is sadness's bodyguard and kind of how fear works too, because I think it's a bodyguard for something else, for another part somewhere. And a lot of coaches and consultants will say this when they do kind of organizational culture and stuff. And it's very true. So if we understand that, then, then a lot of times people would say, well, you know, the last thing you should do is just sort of be selfish and pay attention to just what you're feeling. You should just try to extend yourself and be kind to people no matter what you're feeling. But actually you can't be genuinely that way if you don't deal with what it is you are feeling fear about. Now, does that mean that if you feel fear about something and you, you, you've sort of internalized it your whole life that you should go to therapy for 10 years so that you can deal with this one issue in the workplace? No, it really means being easier on yourself, I think, first and saying, I feel fear, like, you know, and this isn't everybody's like bag, but I, I, I recognize it. So what does that re require? Slowing down. It requires slowing down. And I, I think this is part of the, the, the culture of, of work that we've developed in, in these developed countries is that we, it's next thing, next thing, next thing, always strategically thinking, oh, wait, but slow down a little bit. And we're gonna get all of that done. In fact, what we find is that with slowing down, we get more done. So if we just slow down, a, just a, a pause and say, this is really bringing up something for me here. I don't have the answers right now but I'm gonna to try to figure it out and I'll be back in 30 minutes or I'll be back in, 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 in a day or can you help me understand where you're coming from? And a lot of times people just lack the basic vocabulary to say that. It's not just about the feeling, but it's like, there is another option here. I could shut down and be angry, but then I could also say, you know, let me repair that. I, I think some harm was done. If, there, if I can improve, I would really appreciate you letting me know. And, and even if it, it just pains you to say it, you know, and you feel like you're compromising everything as a CEO. Just understand that if your bottom line is productivity, then taking it a little bit more slowly, making space for other people to feel seen and heard means also that you know that you're seeing and hearing yourself. This is so important. And, and I, um, I know it sounds idealistic maybe, and also not what a lot of people who are sort of young and like, let's do it, wanna hear, let's go, go, go. But more gets done with less. This, every study shows, slowly, more slowly. Such an interesting point because, you know, you talked about um, slowing things down and, you know, and I think, you know, as time goes on, it, it's, you know, the pace picks up, right? You know, we're, we, we're accessible 24 seven and, you know, we've gotta be always on top of, you know, everything that's going on. And at the same time, that leaves little, little, um, opportunity for reflection. 
And I think what I heard you just say is that we should take that time to kind of examine how we feel, but also come up with, I think you put it, the, the vocabulary to allow us to process how we're feeling as well as hear the others. And, you know, I think when you said something along the lines, you know, help me understand, that's different than saying, I don't understand. You know, it's almost, it's almost less threatening. And, and, you know, there is a lot to be, a lot that comes down to semantics. How we say stuff really matters, even if it's, you know, not what we meant. And, you know, one of the lessons I continually learn in my life is, you know, it's not what I say, it's how it's received. And so I need to think harder about what I say so that the person I'm communicating with gets what I'm intending, right? So at least there's, you know, it's, it's, it's deliberate. And I, I like that notion that you talked about, about how do we build that into, you know, interactions. And I guess the other thing I would ask about and along those lines would be, how do we, are there tools or ways that you could advise people on how to approach conversations where we are speaking across a political divide or we are, you know, certain that someone else has a different position on race or really important issues than we do. And so therefore we're kind of coming into this already built up, already tense, already sure about our position, which comes across in the way that we communicate, right? It does. And we, we also walk a fine line because we don't want to think we have to be perfect either. We don't want to have to say exactly the right thing, get the right pronouns every single time. I mean, I think that's very important to, to a lot of people, but if we don't, then our approach in trying to learn and repair is just as important. So if you don't get it right the first time, just saying, you know, I, think, I don't know if I got that right. Will you please let me know? Um, or I, I know I just, I, I, um, I didn't say this exactly maybe the way that I meant it. I don't, I don't know. But again, you know, I, I think a lot of people will say, well, that's not my personality type. I don't, I'm not that way. But we also are not asking for, for perfection. We're asking for um, accountability in the best sense, in the one that wants us all to win. So, so studying a moment on well, how do I translate that totally was wrong to how can we think together to make this different? Like simple phrases like that, that I think are, are learnable, but open up space too. They're not, they're, they're not to, to get people caught up in sort of PC culture um, because there's, there's no community in cancel culture either, like where, where you didn't say it right, so now you're canceled. Well, there's some of that you gotta like drown out because you're never gonna be perfect. And if I'm doing my best and my intention is good and I have studied on, on the best ways to make this a better world and I mess it up, I'm a human being. So I need you to have that faith in me. And, and I'm gonna need to also have the forbearance to say, this person, like this whole group of people just canceled me, but you know what, I'm still here. And I am here, I'm showing up, I wanna do this work, so I'm gonna be here. And, and that's what it is, it's happened to me where you know I, I say, said something and I thought, and the whole group of people who I care about and whose opinion means a lot to me were like, she doesn't get it, she's too old, she's this and that. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean it that way. And I, I, I have enough power in me to say, teach me, I'd love to learn. I love to hear about it and I love to move forward. Let's not get too mired in the words. Let's move forward together. That's so important. So what I hear you saying in a lot of ways is that there's a place for grace in life towards 
others, but also towards ourselves? Absolutely. There is always a place for great. This is, this is the thing about injury, brain injury, heart, like your, your heart, your emotional injury is that there's always room for healing. I, I think even like the, 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 the greatest, like and most sort of quantitative scientists will say, there's always room for healing. You can always change your circumstances some way or another. A lot of people feel very powerless with good reason, but it's in that like powerlessness that you, those are the places where the intangibles happen, where, where people are kind to you. I mean, there, has there ever been a time in your life maybe where you felt like everybody was on your case and you go into a store and somebody says, good morning, it's nice to see you. And you're like, thank you. <laughs> you know, you're just speaking to me, you know, or those things matter to people. So yes, there's always room for that. There's always room for healing. There's always room for, for repair. A lot of people who are really invested in, in societies that champion punishment, that whose prison industrial complexes are incredibly profitable, will say, no, there's not. There's some people that just belong in jail and that's forever. But again, ask a, ask a different question. Like it's, it, I learned so much from reproductive justice rights um, uh, activists who they say a lot of times folks will, will say, well, you know, the, the woman who wants to receive state aid should um, be mandated birth control because we don't think that she should have more children that then become reliant on the state. And reproductive justice activists often say, that's like not even a really interesting way to go about the question of like whether or not they should be eligible for birth control or not. The question is, did they have everything they needed? Did they have somebody to talk to them about sex? Did they have a choice about whether they got pregnant? Did they have access to birth control? Did, did, did the pharmacist know the priest, know the parents in the town? If it's not a question of, you know, we get too unimaginative about people's choices. And even this question around poverty. Well, if it was me, well, it's not you, you know, it is not you. And you, you didn't from the very beginning have no choices. Surely if, if I was dropped in somewhere, I'd be very resourceful about getting out of a bad situation, but that's because I have the tools and that's because I know people and that's because I know how to do a lot of different kinds of jobs and people don't look at me and say, ooh, danger, I don't want you working for me. I, I think a lot of us make a lot of moral assumptions about people's choices when, as I mentioned in the, in, in the short film that you, that you talked about, it's not a question of like, do I wanna go to school? Like, I mean, I don't know if I should, it's really a question of like, do I, do I get breakfast or dinner? Like, like that's, those are the choices that people are having to make. Those aren't legitimate choices. Do I feed my kid dinner or breakfast? Not like, do I wanna shop at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's? Can I afford to give them dinner or breakfast? They're sick. Can I take off work? No, I can't. What do I do? Do I have childcare? Those basic things. Again, the grace that comes in is when the neighbor says, go on, honey. I'll watch the baby or the, the grace is, Hey, I got a little extra this for dinner. Let me, I know your, your baby likes that. Bring them over here. I have this dress I'm not using. Wear this to work, extra socks. Those things that um, it's, it's a low bar in a lot of ways, basic human rights, dignity, kindness, happiness, joy, but there's always room. And it's always the places that we least expect but if we start practicing and building that muscle, it'll be the things we come to expect and the things that we come to expect from ourselves to give to others, you know? 
I, I know it sounds sometimes idealistic, but I always tell people, just try it. See, you could always try it. That's, um, that's so inspiring. So I got to ask you, and I know, you know, Professor Johnson, you're accustomed to being in front of big audiences and that kind of thing. And you, you do have those, those chances, but thinking, looking ahead, if, if the world had to listen to you if you're, for a few minutes about why you're optimistic about what's to come and what it would take to get to those kind of outcomes, what would you say? I would say, and, it, and it's, it's hard. I have to say, I have, little, I have a little response when I think of optimistic because I think, is that truly how I feel? I would say I have faith that it's possible because, and it's a real simple thing. I mean, I, I, if, I, if I'm irritable with my daughter and like, because I've had a day or something, she might go outside and get on the swing or something. And, you know, she might be sad for a minute, but soon I hear her singing. I hear her laughing. I hear her. Do and that's how kids are. They search for the joy, no matter what. That's our next generation of folks who are still there and they still want that joy. You look at any kid, it doesn't matter what's going on around them. And they're going to, that's, they're trained to find it. So as long as we can, let them keep holding on to that for as long as possible. I know there's ways that we sort of have to civilize them and get them ready for the world and everything, but we all have it in us. So that, that's the faith I have. I think we can turn around a lot of this stuff that's going on. There's a lot of people who want to do it. There are indigenous water protectors and soil protectors, people know how, who know how to manage fires. If we, if we just try to access those things that are already here, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So in that sense, I feel very, very faithful about that. The optimism comes when I pay attention to the things that, I, like I said before, make history, but don't always make the history books. There are lots of people organizing for change. There are lawmakers, there are judges, there are the people that we've been taught to fear that are actually doing really great things in their own way. So I, I, I believe that if we can pay more attention to those things and we can, we can build from there, the more goodness we build, the more rest we allow ourselves, we can do it. I know we can do it. Whether we will is the question. But if I were to leave it in the hands of, you know, the joy that I see in my kids and my, my kid and her friends, then if it was all there, I, then I feel, I feel no fear about it. There's a, lot, there's a lot of other factors here. So we have a responsibility in our generation mm. to kind of get out of our own way. We talked about some of the challenges of, of being busy and active and, and social media and all the rest of it. On a positive spin, though, linked to what you've just described about having faith. Yeah, you're saying, well, there's an opportunity, but um, um, having faith. Are we seeing strands of it is kind of the rhetorical question. Are, are we seeing that now? We've seen a lot of um, uh, challenges outside of COVID, yeah, of, of uh, people being murdered in the US, of, of kidnaps in Eastern Europe, etc. Um, a lot of injustice, but we see a lot of um, voice and discussion and protest locally, or I say locally, but internationally, but in countries around the world. Oh, yes. I, I mean, and there are people in Palestine who are saying justice for George Floyd. There are people in Eastern Europe who are saying, I know what these activists are doing in Boyle Heights and in, in Staten Island, and we're going to learn those tools and use them here in Rwanda. The, the work that we do 
um, trying to protect and, and rehabilitate child soldiers can also be used in the South when folks are being trafficked. There's just all these ways that that interconnectedness that the 21st century has brought has been very helpful. And I think there's a lot of people who know exactly what to do with it, which is to spread good, which is to, which is to say, I, we wanna be people who are self-possessed. We're not gonna be possessed by like the kinds of things that don't allow for everybody to get a shot at life, the most basic thing. So I think that yes, young people, we, are, we often say, it, but it is a young energy. It, it requires a lot of energy. It requires a lot of um, possibility, a vision that things can get better no matter how bad they are, that there is room. And not just that people need to be held accountable for oppression, but that another kind of society is possible. And that's, I think, what we're seeing. A lot of times we cast it as people are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. They are, but they also have a vision for something different. And that's happening all over the world. So that's why it's both, it's been, it's been a terrible time, as you say, terrible, um, because of a few people's selfishness and, 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 um, and even narcissism that like so many people have had to die. But there's also, a, a, a change and, a, and this has been such an incredible catalyst for people saying, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Mm. Not just yeah. that I'm and tired, it's that I know we're better than this. And I'm gonna ask you nicely first, and then I'm gonna demand because that's the only language you understand. And, and once we you know, can sort of understand each other's strength, maybe not on the same playing field because a lot of the people who are in power and creating these really untenable conditions don't understand the power of justice and love. But folks who are enacting these kinds of actions, they get it and they know that that's what fuels them because it's not hate that drove people into the streets, it's love. It's love for the mothers of black boys and girls who are slain. It's love for the people who were dying of COVID it's love for the essential workers. It's love for everybody who tries. And that's what propels you. And it also, you know, it makes you most vulnerable. But I, I, again, you know, are we gonna be a victim of all the prescriptions that people give to us about what vulnerability means? Does it mean you're weak? Is it, or does it mean like, yeah, all of those things that I feared the most, here they are. And guess what? I'm turning them into something else. And that to me is real power, is real strength. I really love that and, you know, really appreciate the time. I mean, some of the things I'll take away from this conversation are when you talked about that humanity is always an option and it's always accessible. I mean, that's something that, I mean, really is at the core for each of us and we can make those choices. And, you know, when you talked about, you know, taking our power back, not so much in a grand sense, but take our agency back, our ability to decide how we use our time, how we think, what we find joy in. And then, you know, I'm reminded time and again about, the positive impact of young people. And we can go back in history. We can look at you know, Czechoslovakia and the Velvet Revolution. We can look at what happened in Hungary in the 1950s. We can look at what happened in the US you know, in the 1960s. And time and again, in some ways, it's the younger generation that saves us. And so um, you know, it's exciting to hear. I mean, the, the case you made for faith is, uh, is about young people. And, and, and I share that. So um, really appreciate you joining us on, on this conversation. And I think that there'll be so much that people will take away from this. Thank you. Thank you so much for the incredible questions and for the time as well.
Yeah, thank you, Kate. It's been amazing and so much learning and, and rich, rich tapestry of how you describe the kind of traits and the habits and, and what should should be done. So um, thank you very much for that. Well, I just appreciate too that you all are asking me these questions. And, you know, a lot of people ask me questions about what I have expertise in and like, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can talk about racial capitalism, the political economy. I can talk about history all the time, but I, I don't think that those things are particularly useful if we can't talk about them in this way. I mean, we, you know, so this is why I appreciate your show and what you're doing, but also just who you are. Thank you, because you see past all of that. And I don't want to just be an expert, you know, I want to be in community and this, this helps and, and it's very inspiring for me. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dawe with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.